Will and praise team and orchestra and choir this morning for that beautiful song and, and for all of you for lending your voices together for us to be able to worship our Lord uh, through music this morning, through singing praises to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and, and it is good to be able to be God's people, to gather together and to be able to sing praises to Him. It's also good to be able to open His Scriptures and open His Word and to be able to gather around them, to be able to read them and to be able to examine them and apply their truths to our lives. And so that is what we come to at this time in our service this morning. So if you brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you did, would you please take them out and turn with me once more to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, and we are getting closer and closer to the end of the first epistle of John. We're going to continue on into second and third. We want to cover all of them, but we're coming close to the end of 1 John, and this morning we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. This passage was on my mind this week. Uh, earlier in the week, as a matter of fact, of Monday of this past week, I attended the funeral of a cousin of mine. Uh, his name is Edwin, and, and, and he was my mother's first cousin, so I'm still conflicted and confused as to whether he's my second cousin or if he is my first cousin once removed. I've been told that from different people, and I don't know exactly which way it goes, but Edwin was such a... He was such a, 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 an interesting guy, just a fun guy to be around. He passed away the previous week, and we had his funeral. And, 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 and you know, one thing I was reminded of was in, in the funeral home, just the, the, the pervading spirit of, of joy and, 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 and hope that was there. And there was sadness. There, there was sadness because Edwin had passed away. And, and no one, when you love someone, you never want to see someone uh, pass away. You never want to say goodbye to someone, but nevertheless, there was a real joy that was there. As a matter of fact, even when he was there in the hospital, he was in the ICU unit, and I was told he had one of those machines that was helping him breathe, and he, he couldn't talk when it was on, but he would occasionally, when people were in the room, he would take that thing off and talk to them and, 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 and witness to them. As a matter of fact, even some of our loved ones who were in the room with him just before he passed away, he took that off and told them, said, listen, I'm ready to go to meet my Lord and Savior, and I want you to be ready to go too, because I want you to be there with us. In heaven, and, and so he was even taking those last moments of his life in this life to be able to share the good news of Jesus with them. And, and in fact, in many respects, what I would say is that that, that, that whole, the whole nature and the whole joy and the hope that was there is something that every funeral could be and really should be. You know, it was filled with, with remembrances of, of loved ones and friends in this life, but it was also a service that was brimming with joy and hope that was looking forward to the life that is to come. The question before us is, how is that possible? How is it possible that folks like you and me, folks like my, my friend and mentor in Tennessee used to always say, folks with bumps and warts and bruises, folks who have experienced the good times of life but also know what the valleys are, folks who have messed up, folks who have, have, have made messes of their lives, folks who have failed, how is it possible that we can can face death and face eternity with joy and with hope? Really, that's the question that, that John asked in verse 5 of the previous section. We looked at verse 5 last week in 1 John 5. John asked this question in verse 5. He asked this. He says, who is he who overcomes the world? Now, here's the thing. We could reinterpret the first part of that question this week. Who is he who overcomes all that is opposed to God? Who is he who is victorious over death? Who is he who is victorious over the grave? Who is he who is victorious over sin? That's what John wants to know. Who is he who overcomes the world? Then he answers his own question. But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Friend, I want you to know what that means. 
is that what a person believes about Jesus, who a person believes Jesus really is, that is the determining factor with regard to their being able to face death and the life that will follow in eternity with hope and with joy and with confidence. And what John tells us is that victory, victory that, that leads to hope, victory that leads to joy, victory that, that leads to life is predicated on faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Faith in Him as the Savior sent by God to save sinners from their sins. But then that question then leads us to the next one. The inevitable next question that comes from that is, well, are there any evidences that back that belief up? Are there any credible witnesses who can testify and corroborate this belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world? And Fred, I want you to know absolutely there are. There are credible witnesses that testify to who Jesus is and what He came to do. And this passage that John writes for us this morning identifies three of them. He tells us that God has provided us with three separate and utterly credible witnesses, all of who agree with one another with regard to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, and His words to us open up our hearts to the truth of the message of the gospel. So would you read those words with me this morning? As we begin in verse 6 and read down through verse 13, the Bible tells us this. This is He who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness, and some of your versions are not going to have the following words. There are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. Verse 9. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his son. He who believes in the son of God has the witness in him. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Word and we thank you for the truthfulness of your Word and how it opens up for us the grand and great message and testimony of the gospel. Father, I pray this morning as we gather around your word and as we look intently into it and as we study it, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit. Lead us into this truth. Testify to our spirits of the truth of this gospel. Father, I pray that we would be able to push out all the distractions of this world and all the things that we may have brought into this service today for just a few moments, I pray that you would help us to be able to concentrate on that which you have given to us, your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to be quick to say this morning that even though this passage provides us with tremendous evidence 
that supports our faith in Jesus and leads us to a confidence and to an assurance of our salvation, that does not mean that it is an easy passage. In fact, one commentator that I read this week put it this way. He says, this is the most perplexing passage in the epistle, and it is one of the most perplexing in the New Testament. Now, there are two reasons, really, why I believe that is so. The first one really is, is that the text itself provides us with some difficulties as it pertains to what John actually meant when he wrote about the water and the blood. And I'll, I'm going to talk about that in just a few moments. But that is the, that's the first in, in, the, in the major issue that's there. But then there's a second one. And it's a difficulty that I sort of pointed out when I was reading the text. I mentioned that some of you would not, not read some of the same words that I'm reading. I was reading from the New King James Version this morning. And I, some of you may not see some of the same words that are there. And, and so some of the words that come at the end of verse 7 and the first of verse 8... Some of you don't find in some of your versions if you have an NIV or an ESV or a New American Standard or something like that. And the reason that's the case is because the first time that the words that we read there with regard there being three heavenly witnesses, the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit and these three agree, the first time that those words really ever appear, they appeared in the margin of, of some, some manuscripts that appeared much later after John wrote the original. And over time, as the copyist would copy those manuscripts, because they were all hand-copied, those, those, that marginal comment unfortunately made its way into the main body of the, the manuscripts. And the family of manuscripts from which we have the King James Version and the New King James Version comes from that. And so consequently, it's been translated and included in those versions. However... If you are reading from the NIV or a New American Standard or an English Standard Version, you will note that those words don't appear. And that is because when they go back to the earliest manuscripts that we have record of, those words with regard to the heavenly witnesses of the Father and the Word and the Holy Spirit are not there. And so what I want you to know is that does not mean that they don't testify. It doesn't mean that that's an unbiblical concept in any way, shape, or form. What it just means is, is that when John first wrote that, that was not what he included. It was something that came in a later point. But it does not mean that it's wrong. Nevertheless, this morning what I want us to do is to focus on what John did write about. The three witnesses that he does include. So let me, for the sake of clarity, read from you what the ESV, how it translates these verses. Beginning verse 6 and 8. Let me just reread those verses for you again. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to examine the three testimonies that John talks about here in these verses. And I want us to try to understand how they corroborate and how they, they understand the belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Notice that the first witness that John identifies in the text, the first in the order of the text is the water. And then he says that Jesus came by water, but he doesn't want us to stop there. He says, not only by water, he's not a water only witness, but there's another witness that comes and backs that up. It's the witness of the blood. And then he says, it's not just the water and it's not just the blood, but it is the spirit, the spirit of God who comes and then also testifies as well. Now, what I want to do is I want to just point out for you all that point in the first one on your outline this morning for clarity's sake. I want you to see it all at one time. So it's a lot to chew on, but, but the guys up there are going to help me. We're just going to work our way through the first point and the three subpoints underneath it so that you've got them there in front of you. What John tells us is this. There are three testimonies provided by God 
that agree that Jesus Christ is God's Son. The first one is this, the water, which represents Christ's baptism. The second is the blood, which represents Christ's crucifixion. And the third is the Holy Spirit, who continues to testify to our hearts the truthfulness of the Scriptures. So there's the three testimonies given by God that give evidence to, that give credibility to, that testify to Jesus is the Son of God, the, the one sent to save us from our sins. It is the water, the blood, and the Spirit. His baptism, His crucifixion, and the truthfulness that the Spirit continues to testify to. Now I want you to know that my interpretation, the first two points, versus the point A and point B, that the water and blood, I interpret those to refer to the baptism and to the crucifixion of Jesus. That is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We learn of him at the beginning of his earthly ministry there and in the waters of baptism and what took place when John the Baptist baptized him. And then the, the, the last effect, really, that we understand of his earthly ministry, the book ends that, is when he was crucified on a cross. And I'm going to give you both of those as, as my understanding of what John means when he writes about the water and the blood. Honesty compels me to tell you that not all interpreters agree with regard to that. There's other opinions with regard to what John was talking about when he, when he mentions the water and the blood there. And what I would say to you is I, time does not permit me to go into all of those various arguments and, and present to you the, the, the credibility of them as well as the deficiencies of those arguments. I would say to you that any good commentary that you would come across in 1 John will most likely elucidate those arguments and you would be able to read those there. What I want to do for this morning is though is present to you why I believe that he is talking about the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus. The reason that I believe that is because remember that John is supplying for us evidences that God has provided for, that support our belief in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. So that being said, consider what we know about Jesus at His baptism. We know that it occurred at the beginning of His earthly ministry, and it's recorded in all four Gospels. And in John's gospel, he talks about John the Baptist being there, baptizing, doing what he did. And, and he tells us that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he looked at him and according to John chapter 1 verse 29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And then John the Baptist says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, what is significant to recognize is that when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was the forerunner of Christ. And his ministry had simply been to prepare the way for Jesus to come. And so he came baptizing with water. And he baptized with, for the repentance and remission of sins. And as all four Gospels tell us, John the Baptist was doing exactly that when Jesus showed up and compelled John the Baptist to actually baptize him. And Matthew tells us that when that event took place, when that meeting took place, John the Baptist says, I need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me. You want to be baptized by me? I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus said, 
Permit it to be so. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Think about that for a second. See if you can get your mind around this. Jesus Christ, He who knew no sin, the perfect, sinless Son of God, condescended to enter into waters of baptism that were there to show repentance and remission of sin. Why did He do that? Was it because He needed to be forgiven of sin? No. Jesus entered those waters because He wanted to display in a very dramatic way that He fully intended to deal with our sin and to take away our guilt. Therefore, John the Baptist could look at Him and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now Matthew, in his gospel account of Jesus' baptism, adds this significant detail to the events that surrounded it. He tells us that immediately after Jesus had been baptized by John the Baptist, he says, Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what those varying accounts from the Gospels tell us is that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus, the Son of God, condescended to step into the waters of baptism that symbolized the repentance of sin. And at that precise moment, God the Father sent His Spirit to testify of what Jesus came to do and who He was. And it was also at that precise moment that He voiced from heaven for all to hear that this was His Son in whom He was well pleased. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you this. Could God have given us a clearer testimony of who Jesus is and what He came to do than what He did at the baptism? Everything that happened, all of the evidence that is there shows that Jesus was the Son of God come to earth to save His people from their sins. But it doesn't stop there. John said it's not, it's not just the water, it's the water and the blood. He says there's, there's an agreeing element here that happened at the end of his earthly ministry. The baptism happened at the beginning. His crucifixion happened at the end. And he, we know that the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we should not be surprised that he points to the blood as another testifying credible witness to who Jesus is and what he came to do. If the water points to the baptism, then the blood points to the cross. And let's remember what happened on the cross. The Bible tells us that as Jesus hung there, bearing the guilt of our sins upon Himself, that He cried out with His last breath. And John 19 says this, said that He, he, he cried out, It is finished! And that He bowed His head and He gave up His spirit. In the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew we read that when that happened, when Jesus breathed His last, Matthew tells us that behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And Matthew goes on to tell us that they walked around, and they were visible witnesses that, who testified that they had seen them. Now I want you to consider those amazing details that accompanied Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. When the veil of the temple was ripped, understand this, that veil was there because it separated sinful humanity from the Holy of Holies. And it was there in the Holy of Holies that God had presided. And that was His testimonies to where He existed among people. And the veil was there to separate all of sinful humanity from Him. 
But at the point of Jesus' death on the cross, God Himself ripped that veil in two, thereby symbolizing that sinful humanity now had a way to come to fellowship with God, and it came through the death of His Son. What are we to make of all of those bodies? That the graves opened up, and suddenly they were back alive, walking around. And listen, we may think, well, that's too incredible to believe, but there were witnesses who testified to the fact that they had seen their loved ones who were walking around. What are we to make of that? Except that Jesus Christ, through His death, defeated death, and there was victorious over it. As a consequence, there were dead who had been raised back to life. So not only is there now a way to be with God, but He has shown that He is victorious over death. And Matthew further goes on to tell us, Standing by, watching all of that take place in front of them was a centurion soldier. A man who had no affinity for the Jewish belief system. A man who cared not about the Jews and I would dare say had not one whit of care about a man named Jesus who was being proclaimed the king of the Jews. He was simply there to carry out his responsibility as a soldier. Nevertheless, when he saw all that took place, when the sky darkened and the earth quaked and all that happened, he himself uttered this. He says, this truly was the son of God. Again, friends, let me ask you, can you think of a better testimony than that? That God attested through great visible signs and wonders as well as through the testimony of a Roman soldier that Jesus was truly who He claimed to be. The Savior of sinners. The Son of God. Two defining moments. One at the beginning of His ministry, at His baptism. One at the end of His ministry, at the crucifixion. Both together serve as a testimony that Jesus Christ came to save Sinners like you and me. But there's a third witness that John tells us about. He refers to it as the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Now we've already read how the Spirit came and descended upon Jesus at His baptism like a dove. We, we know that the Spirit worked there. But I want you to know that when John writes what he writes here in 1 John 5, he said that the Spirit bears witness. It is a present active verb in the Greek, which means it continues to have action. It's not just something that was in the past. It is something that takes place now. So the Spirit of God continues to testify continues to, to, to speak to us about the truth regarding who Jesus is. And how does he do that? Well, he does it by reminding us of what happened. He reminds us of what Jesus taught to us in the Scriptures and what Jesus did. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Jesus said that the Spirit would do. In John 14, verse 7, he says, The Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. In John 16, Verses 13 and following, Jesus said, When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will tell you things to come. And He will glorify Me, for He will take of what is Mine and declare it to you. That's what the Spirit of God does. Friend, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into an understanding of who Jesus is and what He came to do. His, his ministry also involved those who wrote the Bible. He carried men of the Bible along as they wrote the Word of God there. He was the one behind that, so He speaks to us through His Word. 
Not only that, but he continues to work with men, women, boys, and girls today, testifying to them, bringing their understanding in their hearts so that they can truly understand it. That is why Paul writes what he writes, that God's Spirit testifies with our spirit that He is truly the Son of God. Why? Because we believe His Word. These are the witnesses. These are the three witnesses that John tells us about. The baptism of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, and the Spirit of God who comes to continue to testify of that truthfulness. Now, having identified them and having made that important statement of their agreeing with one another, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he has testified of his Son. Listen, what he's saying there is, is if it's normal and customary for you and I as human beings to accept the testimony of other human beings, if, if, if we weren't there for something who took, that took place in history, but there was someone who was there who wrote down an account of what it is, and we trust their account because they were eyewitnesses, or let me bring it into modern times. If somebody comes to you and says, hey, this is a good movie that you ought to go see or this is a good restaurant that you ought to go to and if we accept their credible witnesses or they accept their testimony as witness and, and, and it's credible and we follow through on it based upon what other humans tell us, then what John says, well then how much more ought we to believe and, and give credibility to God who testifies concerning His Son, who testifies to something so absolutely important? as to the identity of His Son and to what He came to do. And listen, verse 10 tells us just how important it is. It tells us how much is riding on whether we accept God's witness or not. The decision to believe the witness of God concerning His Son is not an insignificant one. As a matter of fact, I would submit to you it is the most significant decision that you will ever make. In other words, John tells us he who believes in the Son of has the witness in Himself. The Spirit of God has testified with our spirit so that now our testimony is that Jesus Christ not only is the Savior of the world, He's my Savior. He's the one who saved me from my sins. It has become my personal testimony. And then, that's the good news. Friends, there is the other side that must also be considered. You see, John warns that the one who does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. Greg Allen has written about the severity of this. He says, because it is God himself who testifies of his son, anyone who refuses to believe what he has testified isn't simply making a religious choice they are actually blaspheming God. If it is true, after all, that God opened the heavens and identified Jesus to the world and declared, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, then anyone who says, I don't believe it, is calling God a liar. And whatever else someone might claim about their relationship with God, Greg Allen writes, if they reject His Son, then they have called God a liar and they do not walk in fellowship with Him. John Stott, in his commentary on this particular verse, says this, Unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. And its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to Him. Therefore, friends, what cannot be mistaken about this passage is that John tells us unequivocally that what you believe about Jesus 
who you believe He is. Who by faith you understand what He came to do. That is the critical turning point of your life. It's not just your life in the here and now though. It is for eternity that you will enter into once this life is over. That leads me then to the second point that I want you to see on your outline this morning because this is what I believe that John is also saying to us. We're going to take all of it in one, in one point as well. John tells us that the testimony that God has provided allows for only one of two decisions. Only one of two. The first one is this. Belief in Jesus Christ as God's Son, thereby resulting in eternal life. That's the first option. The second option is this. Blasphemy of God by refusing to believe in Jesus Christ, resulting in eternal death. Belief in Jesus that results in eternal life or blasphemy of God that results in eternal death. Verse 11 says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. But then He gives us a caveat in verse 12 and says, He who, does, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Friend, the opposite of life is death. And the Bible clearly tells us that those who die apart from Christ will enter into eternal death. That does not mean that they will go out of existence. Absolutely not. Far from it. What it means is that they will exist eternally, separated from God in a place that was prepared for the devil and his demons in a place called hell. And eternal death in hell is the result of blaspheming God by refusing to believe his testimony concerning Jesus. On the other hand, the gospel tells us this. Here's the good news. That eternal life is a gift that is given to all who will believe in Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that that means that it is, since it is a gift, it is not something that you can earn. It is not something that you can work for. It is not a prize to be earned. It is rather a gift to be received because God in His great mercy and His great grace toward you offers you that. And here's the best news. It is available to all who will bow before Him and confess Him as Lord and Savior. It's also incredibly important to note this is that it comes in no other way except through Jesus Christ. John says there in verse 11, God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. John 3.16 says, God so loved us that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us there is no other way under heaven by which we can be saved except for Jesus Christ who died for our sins. So eternal life is a gift of God. It's found only in the person of Jesus. And I want you to know this. For those who have trusted in Him, it is a present possession. It is something that you have right now. If you are a believer in Christ, you have that eternal life in you right now. Because it says, He who has the Son has life. All who have believed, they, even though their physical death may come, even though their life on earth will end, they know they have eternal, everlasting life. Why? Because Jesus has given it to us. John tells us all of these things and then he gets to verse 13 and he says, and that's why I've been writing to you. That's why I took time to write all this. Because I want you to be assured that you have that eternal life. 
that it is yours and that you're not questioning it, that you're not running around wondering, well, how can I have it or what does it mean? John says, no, I want you to know for certain that you have eternal life and that you possess it. And friend, I want you to know, I want you to know that too. That's why I give you my sermon and a sentence this morning. My sermon and a sentence is this. Our only hope for the eternal life that God offers is a genuine faith in Jesus Christ whose baptism and atoning sacrifice along with the witness of the Holy Spirit testify that He is the Son of God. You know, that's the confidence. It's that assurance that pervaded the funeral home that I was in this past Monday. It actually pervaded the funeral home I was in on this past Friday at the church that I was at this past Friday. We got Jennifer and Evan up there, and Jennifer's grandmother passed away this past week, and her, her funeral was this past Friday up at Pleasant Hill Baptist Church up in Martin, Georgia, and I was there to be for there for that. And when they talked about Miss Johnny Terrell, her grandmother, and when they talked about my cousin Edwin, you know what they talked about? They talked about the fact that they realized that this life was not all that there was. There was something greater awaiting them, and there was great joy. Though there was sorrow, yes, there was great joy in that room. Why? Because they could face it recognizing that there was one who had bought and paid for them to be able to go to heaven and to be with him forever. And that same message is true for each one of us in this room this morning. I wonder, do you have that confidence today? Are you assured that when you meet death, that eternal life in heaven awaits you on the other side? Here's something that none of us in this room can avoid. Every one of us in this room will one day have an appointment with death. It may be decades away. It may be hours away. You and I do not know. What we can know is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ offers you the real and true joy that comes with hope. Allowing you to live your life right now for the glory of God, knowing that He has paid the penalty for your sins and that by faith you have received His offer. Is He your hope? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God come to save you from your sins? My prayer is, is that you do. But if you do not, know this. God offers His salvation to you today. And he invites you to believe upon him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray.